This episode has been edited from its original version. More details at the end and on the web. I was six or seven years old, and I didn't want to go to swimming lessons at the YMCA. Like, I really didn't want to go. The locker room was gross, and I hated the smell of chlorine. The teacher made us swim one by one while the rest of the class watched. I wore the same blue bathing suit every week, and I was bored. I thought I could already swim just fine, so why keep going? But despite my efforts, my mom said I had to go. And one night, in the midst of my complaining, she sat me down in the family room of our house in Olympia, Washington. And I don't remember her exact words, but she said I had to learn to swim because she could not. And that mattered. Because years ago, it was a matter of life and death. My mom left Vietnam with my dad and my sister, who was one and a half at the time, and they fled by boat. There were no life jackets, and a lot of the people on that boat, including my mom, did not know how to swim. And not everyone survived. So that's why I had to keep taking swim lessons. I never complained about it again. When my family fled by boat in 1978, before I was born, other people came with us. My name's Christy Yang Ngoc Nguyen. I teach third grade and I'm a boat person. Christy's a dear friend I've known all my life. She's like a sister. And she was a little girl when our families fled. Her mother, who everyone called Go Hương, was one of the key planners of the escape. Go Hương was a teacher in South Vietnam, and she invited my parents, who were also teachers, to join her. But Go Hương and one of her daughters, they didn't make it. It was kind of... I remember my father discovered that my mom and my sister were gone, and that was like the... The first time that I saw my father cry. In the face of such an incredible loss at a young age, Christy has become an incredibly resilient person. She's bubbly, outgoing, and really fun to hang out with. I really admire her for this. And despite the painful memories, she's gone back to Vietnam many times. She's even revisited the village where our families fled decades ago. And a while back, she asked me, would you like to see it too? She had some lingering questions about the details and the circumstances of our family's escape that she wanted answers to. And she wanted to get to them before the people who were there died, before it was too late. I thought about it. The two times I've gone to Vietnam, it was with my parents. I've never been there by myself. And Christy, she's fun to travel with, and she's a meticulous planner. She would take care of all the details. And maybe, maybe I'd learn something about my family's escape, too. So I said, yes. I'm Tan Tan, and you're listening to Second Wave, an American story that begins in Vietnam. Today, we're going back to where it all started. Our first stop on our journey in Vietnam was to a place called Gamau. It's a city near the southernmost point of Vietnam. Christy went to school there at a Buddhist temple as a little girl, and she wanted to see if people there remembered her or her family. So we rode there by bus. This bus was not your standard Greyhound. 
We took off our shoes before going inside, and there were rows of bunks where we could lay down. Leaving the bus, putting my shoes back on. We wanted to take the bus because we wanted to see the country, and we're definitely, like, literally seeing the countryside, so it's pretty cool. See a lot of farmers? Like, farms where they're actually, like, they are farming. Yeah, rice fields. We were in Vietnam, and I was loving it. I took everything in. Our bus stopped at two giant markets, brimming with Vietnamese treats. So we're going to have mip mia, sugar cane juice. So um, I wish people could see it. How do we describe this? It's a machine that, like, flattens the, these, like, sticks of sugar cane. Yeah, and, like, the juice comes out. And it's really good when you ice it. It's, like, the perfect refreshment. We stuffed ourselves with local snacks. Yeah, 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 let's get one of those, too. I want to try it. We devoured everything from fresh banh mi sandwiches and cured meats wrapped in banana leaves. Okay, mung bean cake. My dad loves it. So apparently that's one of the other specialties in this area where we're uh, resting. We're taking a break right now. And other things we're new to. We saw our first uh, squat toilet. (laughs) Christy was saying the farther south we go, the less nice the bathrooms are going to (laughs) get. That's more rural because uh, we are like in a rural province now. Yeah. It was moments like these that made me feel painfully aware of my American upbringing, how removed from this place I am, despite my deep connections. I was having a good time, but I try to remind myself of the more somber aspect of this trip. As we were riding, I turned to Christy and I asked her, What did she think that our families were getting into back then, when they escaped? She was only a little girl at the time. Right, yeah, I thought it was going to be like um, one of the trips that we used to take, like just to go and visit a beautiful place, something really beautiful, like something you read about fairy tales. And um, even though like that, we were told that we had to wear dark clothes, but for me, like I chose like a red sweater. I was like ready to <laughs> to go uh, on a, a tour, not like to escape. Because in my mind, it's just like, oh, okay, we're going to go to another country. It's very exciting. As we rode to Gamau, I continued thinking of what it must have been like for my parents back then. I took in the lush green landscape. But after seven long hours, our bus just arrived in Gamau. After a full night's sleep, we headed out the next morning to a beautiful old Buddhist temple in Gamau. Oh, this is? Yes. It's been nearly 40 years since Christy set foot in this place. I used to sit under this tree. She instantly spotted the big tree she used to play under as a little girl. The temple itself is striking. It's painted in bright colors, pinks, greens, yellows. And on the floor just outside the temple, volunteers arranged herbs in perfect rectangles to bake and dry in the sun. They're used for herbal medicine. We walked around and we looked for people who might have remembered Christy. We made our way to a room full of local patients waiting for acupuncture and herbal treatments. 
And then Christy found a healer who remembered her. But he couldn't recall many details. One day, Christy and her sisters were there, and the next day, they were gone. It was dangerous after the North took over South Vietnam to talk about certain things. And people escaping from Vietnam was one of them. Very hush-hush. We followed a couple other of Christy's leads, but we just didn't find much. Maybe we'd have more luck on our next stop, a tiny fishing village called Song Om Rau. Christy hired a driver to take us there. This village is Christy's hometown, and she still has family there. And the plan was to meet at her uncle's house. We'd all have dinner and catch up, and hopefully her family would help Christy answer some more questions. When we arrived in Samomdao, we could sense a certain energy in the air. Fishermen were preparing to head out to sea for 20 days of fishing. They were prepping food and supplies and burning incense, praying for a fruitful, safe journey. We walked a few blocks from our motel to Christie's uncle's house. And on the way, we took in our surroundings. But it's, um, it's happening. Check this out. I don't know what this is. We're hearing some kind of music. This is not the Vietnam that you see in tourism videos and Anthony Bourdain's excursions. It just seems so far out there. Oh, it's a funeral. It's actually a funeral happening. The town is working class and vibrant. Even the funeral we passed by felt exciting. After a day of traveling and a short walk, we arrived at Christie's uncle's house. They had prepared a fresh seafood dinner for us. Christie's uncle, aunt, and cousins welcomed us with open arms and fed us mantis shrimp, a local specialty. They were so gracious. As we crowded around the coffee table and peeled the seafood with our bare hands, I felt a connection with this place. Over cold beer, Christy filled in her family about our mission to find people who might be able to tell us stories of what they remembered about the escape. She wanted to talk to as many witnesses as possible. The way houses are designed in Vietnam made this pretty easy. Because to put it simply, there's no front door. The entrances are completely open, except for a gate that's used at night. Aside from when you're sleeping or away, your house is open for people to walk right in. And that's exactly what happened while we were eating. This one woman from the village came into Christie's uncle's living room. We got to talking, and we found out that her husband was a teacher in the village, like my parents were so many years ago. Christie asked her if she remembered my dad, and she did. I was so surprised to hear this. All these years later? My parents lived here, but it was pretty brief, like not even two months. And this reminded me of something. Before I left for Vietnam, my dad told me to check on two people. I didn't think much of it at the time. They were two students of his that he's always wondered about. They lived in Samwamdok when my dad was a teacher here, and they later got married. He told me he always saw something special in them, and he hoped that his escape would inspire them to do the same thing, so that they could start over, like he did. I asked one of Christie's cousins about them. Did she know what happened to them? Mm. 
Her response shocked me. She told me the funeral that we walked by, the one with the upbeat music, that was for one of those two students, a man named Fuk. His wife, Nguyet, was the other student. The next day, his funeral was still going on. These are multi-day events in Vietnam. So I went. I was so curious about her. Did she remember my dad? Could she give me any answers? There were tables outside at the edge of the street and people sitting on plastic red stools. There was music playing, the same music that we had heard the night before. Visitors stopped by and paid their respects to Phuc. I introduced myself to Nguyet and I sat down next to her. And I told her that I was the daughter of one of her teachers way back when. She said that I looked like my dad, which made me laugh. And then I told her about how my dad had wanted me to check in on how they were doing. She said those years after our families escaped were hard. That the loss of Go Heung, Christie's mom, was a shocking event. She said it was seen as a warning for others who were thinking of escaping. When Go Heung died, the village lost a piece of its soul, she said. Everyone was scared. Nobody could believe that a vibrant person like Go Heung and her young daughter could die like that. And after she died, no one was allowed to talk about her or memorialize her. It was a really scary time. She told me Christie's mother was adored throughout Sangwondo. And I feel like Go Heung and her family were our saviors, I said. And she agreed. Yeah, it looks like they were. My dad had wanted to inspire people with their escape, but the sad truth is the opposite happened. As for Phuc and Nguyen, their lives were hard those years after the war. It really struck me while I was talking to Nguyen how lucky my family was and how lucky I am. We'll be right back. During our stay in Samwondop, we talked to a lot of people, and Christy and I learned more details about our families. But there was something that Christy wanted to show me. We headed down the Samwondop River by boat. She wanted to show me the route our families took when they spent their last night in Vietnam. We are literally, we're on like a little boat. What do you call this in Vietnamese? Yeah, this is the, the same boat. Start our escape with the same type of boat. We're definitely in Vietnam. This is a little, we're just going, we're just going with it. It's not like there's any life jackets. <laughs> but Christy said, on the actual night of the escape, it was different. And it was pretty crowded, like we, like we had to sit next to each other. This is luxury. Our family's escape required extensive planning and rendezvous at several locations. On the day of the escape in late October 1978, my mom was told to get on a boat and to pick up Christy and her sister at the Buddhist temple in Gamau. That's the temple that Christy and I visited earlier. Then Christy showed me where everyone met up that night. But this land belongs to my grandparents, and we, uh, we used to have a little farmhouse here. Christy's family used to grow rice on a farm by the Som Omdok River. Her family still owns it. 
Now they cultivate shrimp. Lovely. And you can tell. So, smells like it, which I love. I love the smell. Oh, yeah, salted fish. Uh, it's amazing. It smells bad, but. But Christy's a little uh, nostalgic because this was like very quiet and peaceful. No other homes or anything back when she was little. And now it's like kind of a little bit of a landfill. This is it. I mean, this is where you guys took off. I just, it's different from what I, what I had envisioned. This farm, so unassuming and peaceful, this was the spot where they all left Vietnam nearly 40 years ago. I don't know what I was imagining when I envisioned my parents' escape, but this was not it. This was the spot where my father, mother, and sister met with Christie's family. They hid out here the night before they all escaped Vietnam together. From this farm, the plan was to take a couple of boat rides and make it to a refugee camp in Malaysia. They would figure out their future lives from there. But despite the careful planning, everything that could go wrong that night did. The story I've been told, one version of it anyway, is that people in the party showed up late, and the boat was delayed. They waited, and they waited. At the beginning, it was raining, and there were like little waves, and water got into the boat, and we had to scoop out the water. And then the weather took a turn for the worse. The last thing I remember was that this huge, giant wave came, and I look at it and I say, wow, this is really big. And that was my last thought before um, the boat got capsized. The boat capsized. Everyone was hurled into the water. At this point, my mom remembers being in the water, swallowing fuel and clinging to my dad's neck. He screamed at her to loosen her grip so that he could swim with one arm and keep my mom and my sister afloat. I didn't know how to swim. We tried to stay close together, and I, I remember at one point I, I kind of like give up because we were drinking a lot of water and we were so tired, struggling, and my sister was pulling me up. But then like after like waves, after waves hit it, we kind of split up. And I was fortunate with my little brother, we grabbed on into like a fishing net or something and we float. And then miraculously, a nearby fishing boat heard the sound of children in the water. And then someone from that fishing boat threw out a net. And I remember screaming really loud to make sure that they saw me, they heard me. My family was saved. And so was Christy and her sister, her younger brother, her uncle, and several others. Everyone gathered on the boat and started checking on their loved ones to make sure that everyone was safe. And then when we got there, and we were like asking mom, you know, asking for my mother, but we could not find anything. The survivors were taken to Christie's dad, a fishing boat captain, who was waiting for them on his vessel nearby. And when he looked around, and he didn't see his wife and his youngest daughter, he like literally broke down and cried. And um, at first he didn't want to go. But a lot of people were trying to persuade him to go. they they like, oh, look at your children. If you go back, they will get arrested. And so finally he um, he decided to go because he he um, he was the captain of the boat, so we we need him to go. There was no sign of Christie's mom and sister anywhere. The family had to go. There was no turning back. At this point, I can't imagine how he mustered the will to do so, but Christie's father, Yung Hai, he moved forward 
and he steered the survivors through international waters to the shores of Malaysia and a refugee camp. Eventually, they made their way to the United States. It's hard to overstate how traumatic this was for everyone who survived, especially Christie's family. After this happened, a lot of people got mad, and they started pointing the finger at this one guy. His name is Yah, and everyone's memory is a little hazy here because so many years have passed. But as my dad recalls, Yung Hai entrusted Yah with delivering our families directly to Christie's dad's boat. And I know this is confusing, but there was some kind of miscommunication or misunderstanding. And apparently, Yah didn't take them straight there. Instead, he dropped them off with a different boat. And then, as you know, the storm hit. The other boat capsized. Christy and I wanted to hear Yah's side of the story. Making things even more complicated, he's also one of Christy's cousins. On our last day in Samwamdop, Christy's uncle helped us track him down. Ya lived in a neighboring village about 20 minutes away by car. All right, here we go. We're going inside. Ya was so excited to talk to us, which surprised me given how people have talked about him. He's now a middle-aged man in his 60s, thin, bald, and tanned from working outside for years. We walked into Ya's house, and it was very spacious. He has a large garden and an SUV, and you could tell that he's done well for himself. One of his walls was covered in photos of young kids playing sports, football, and cheerleading. His wife led us outside to their patio, and she served us kumquats and tea. We asked Ya about what happened that night, what went wrong, and he described how he remembers it. He said everything was fine at first. But then the rain started. He swore he'd fulfilled his duty that night by dropping them off at the right boat. He thinks that if the storm had not hit, everyone would have survived. It was bad luck. I tried to fulfill my responsibility. They blamed me. The rest of the family blamed me, he said. He's had to live with the guilt of the death of Christie's mom and sister ever since. Yeah looked down at times, but he answered our questions. He even drew a map of the route they took that night. This conversation would end up haunting me for months. At that time, in that moment, I took what he said at face value. He seemed so ready to answer our questions and to share his version of what happened that awful night. Today, months later, I think he might have been trying to convince me of a story he'd been telling himself all these years. And as we were walking back to our car, I asked Yeah about those photos that were hanging on the wall. Who were those children? Turns out that Yeah later went on to steer other members of Christie's family out to sea. He got his own kids out too, and they all made it safely to America. They were photos of his grandkids. He tried to escape as well, several times. On one of those trips, he even made it all the way to a refugee camp. But by that point, years after the war, South Vietnamese refugees were starting to overcrowd camps, and a lot of people were not allowed to seek asylum. So Ya was sent back to Vietnam.
here we are. We're coming up to the shore. Fine. Our trip would not be complete without another stop. We went to one other site along the Samwomdup River. We walked about five minutes. It was muddy and covered with leaves. This is my grandfather, and this is my grandmother, and, um, and this is my father. We reached Christie's family's plot. It was fenced off and had a roof to protect it from the elements. For the first time, I saw where Christie's mother and sister are buried. Her dad is there now, too. After Christie's father died more than 20 years ago, Christie and her siblings brought his remains back here so that he could rest in peace next to his wife and child. I looked over at Christy, and she was so calm. I asked her how she was able to come to terms with this over the years. I don't know. It's just because something that I have accepted, so it's, it's nice to be back. But she says it hasn't always been easy. Now, it, it took me a while to get over my mom's death because she passed away so sudden and when I was so young. On a previous trip to her hometown, to Samwomdaup, it was more difficult for her. And I remember the first time I came back, I was like in denial. I was hoping that she was still alive, that they have kept her all these years like in a secret place. And I kept waiting for her to appear. But I'm like, where is she, you know? And and even like when I went to the farm, I said, oh, she definitely, they probably hit her on the farm and she couldn't come out and say hi to me. But um then I spent like for a whole week there, and then on my last day, and I'm still hoping that she will show up, but uh, um, she didn't. I asked her if she learned anything new about her from this trip. I just made me proud, you know, to have a mother like her. Um, I heard a lot of good things about her, so it just made me very proud. And also make me sad that she lived such a short life, you know, she... If she had lived longer, you know, she can contribute so much to society. Because she has also been my uh, role model for me, too. She was very strong. Christy has so much to be proud of. If only her mom knew what her sacrifice led to. That her four surviving children and numerous grandchildren are some of the most resilient people I know who've built amazing lives in America. And I can't help but think how much Gohung has rubbed off on her kids, especially Christy. Christy was the meticulous planner for our trip, guiding me through rural Vietnam and our family's difficult pasts. While the escapes continued for many more years into the early 1990s, bringing tragedy after tragedy to this coastal town, things are better now. There are no more boat people coming from Vietnam. That window closed, as Ya learned. I've always known my parents left Vietnam by boat. And now, I know more about the circumstances, the luck, and the people who made our American story possible. And it really hit me while I was there. A lot of it really was luck, good and bad. I was 35 when I embarked on this journey. And that was the same age my dad was when he decided to leave everything he knew behind him. And that makes me wonder, what would my life have been like if my parents stayed? I look at that next time on Second Wave. 
Second Wave is a production of KUOW and PRX. Our producer is Caroline Chamberlain. Our editor is Jim Gates. I'm Ton Tan. Music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. If you've been enjoying Second Wave, please take a moment and review us on Apple Podcasts. It will help us get the word out. And if you are Vietnamese American, we'd love to hear your story. We might even base a future episode around it. Drop us a note on our Facebook page or Twitter at Second Wave KUOW. Thanks for listening. In the original version of this episode, when Christie's cousin is telling us the story about the night of the escape, I said that I felt he was sincere. I said that because in the moment he appeared, I thought, to believe in what he was saying. We remove that line in this episode because it was being interpreted by people very close to me in a way that I never intended. It was not my intention to say that I believe Christie's cousin's account of his role in the escape that night over her late father's account. My comment was not meant to be an endorsement of the cousin's views or that I was taking his side. I don't know if Christie's cousin was telling the truth, and I wish I'd been much more careful about what I initially said. Language matters, even if it's just one word or semantics.